If I had a scepter, I would give it to him. If I had a business, I would give it to him. If I had a family, I would give it to him. If I had a crown, I would give it to him. Would you? Crown him with many crowns. Revelation chapter 8, as we continue to look into the future, God has just pulled back a corner of the, of the veil and has said, here are some things that are going to happen. And perhaps the order in which they happen is as important as what happens. But we come now to a passage in Revelation chapter 8, and it's the opening of the seventh seal. When he opened the seventh seal in verse 1, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Thus is the introduction to the seventh seal, the opening of the seventh seal. Now perhaps the key turning point in this passage is the altar scene when the angel takes the golden censer and lights the incense, the prayers ascend to God, then he goes back to the sacrifice altar, and I'll explain that in a moment, takes the coals and casts them upon the earth. The fires representing judgment, the wrath of God, now being poured out on the earth. But the central focus of this, the lesson from prophecy, and it's not just important what happens, but that we learn in the prophetic study how God works. I want you to see the practical in the prophetic. For here is a key. The same fire from the sacrifice altar that lights the incense and ascends with prayers of the saints to heaven is the same fire that the angel takes and casts upon the earth, indicating that the judgment, the wrath of God, which is upon all men, either goes on Christ or it comes on us. And those who have been saved by the work of Christ are spared the wrath of God. But Christ is the dividing line. Your encounter with him is what divides your destiny and determines your destiny. The truth is that the method of God in every age, in prophetic times as well as the past, the method of God in every age is a method of response. Now hear this carefully. In his sovereignty, God takes the initiative then waits for a response, then takes the initiative, then waits for our response, then takes the initiative and waits for our response. Life is a series of God's initiatives and our responses. And the ultimate initiative 
is the divine incarnation, Christ coming into the world. And it is Christ and man's encounter with him that divides men and divides history and is another and is perhaps the penultimate of all of these crises and all of these initiatives or all of the forks in the road which we have presented to us. It was a cold February night. I'm a young preacher who's just graduated from Bible college. I'm going from one youth revival to the next. I'm working my way from Key West, and I wound up that year in Nova Scotia, one of the most remarkable years in my life. I have no idea how it all happened. I didn't have a national radio program. I didn't have any mailing list. I wasn't mailing out anything to anybody. Somebody would hear about this young preacher that played the trumpet and wrote choruses when people gave him ideas for choruses. And it was sort of a leapfrog series of revivals right up the coast all year long. And on one cold February night, I happened to remember my old high school sweetheart that I broke up with and I decided that I would write her a note. I have no idea why I did that. I have no idea. I was just moved on this cold night. Maybe I was lonely. I don't know. Maybe I'd just gotten $35 for a two-week revival. That probably was it. But I decided I was going to write. I opened up the dash of my car and found the remnants of an old envelope. And on that note, which is still tucked away in our attic, I scrawled a revival invitation. Dear Shirley, I wonder if you would like to see me again. Isn't that presumptuous? <laughs> I hadn't talked to her in ages. And I took an initiative. It was a divine moment. It was a turning point in my life. I had one envelope and one stamp, and I addressed it. She was finishing up nurse's training, and I dropped it in the mail on that cold, bitter, wet February night. And she responded to my divine initiative. And now, almost 35 years later, she is still responding and putting up with me. It was a fork in the road. It was a moment that changed my life. It was one of those times when I don't know why God put it in my heart and it changed her life and it changed my life and brought us back together. Ladies and gentlemen, I am absolutely convinced that in the past and the present and the future, God is the divinely proactive one who is either causing or permitting things in your life and everything comes at God's initiative and you have a chance to respond. And that response determines what God does next, what he allows. Life is a series of responses. The Thorndike Barnhart Dictionary says that initiative is three things. It is the active part in taking the first step to anything. That's God's role. Secondly, it is the readiness and ability to be the one to start something. That's God's role. 
Third, it is the right to be the first to act in anything or everything. That is initiative. And that describes the sovereignty of God. And it describes what God does in this life. And life for us is a series of divine encounters at which we have a chance to respond. So it was with Israel. Joshua said, choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. God had given a series of divine initiatives. So it was to Pharaoh. God gave seven initiatives, opportunities for him to respond. And the response, if you just understand that, it will turn the key to understand life with God. A man several weeks ago went to Las Vegas. Did you read this? He stood at a gaming table smoking a cigar. They said, you can't smoke a cigar at this game. And they kicked him out of the game. And he went to the next game and won $13 million in the first play. I don't even care if he's a Baptist as long as he'll tie that it'll be okay. <laughs> now the cigar experience represents a moment for him, an opportunity. How is he going to respond? Now some of you would have said, if I can't smoke my cigar in this, in this game, then none of the rest of the games are worthy of me and I'm leaving. And he would have missed. How much? $13 million. Was that third? I believe it was $13 million. Now, life is a series of opportunities, of incidences at which your response determines everything and how God works. Notice the four elements here. The first is the seal. It's the seventh seal. And in every one of these instances, the seventh opens up seven more of something. The seventh seal opens up the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet opens up the seven bowls. So it is the fullness of fullness, seven being the complete number. And when you come to the last of these woes or to the last of these judgments, when the last is open, the scripture says that this is the fullness or the end of the wrath of God on the earth. And so by the time you come to that seventh bowl, the wrath is done. And we'll show you that as we move through the book of Revelation. The second element you need to see in this passage is the silence. You see, in the first seal in chapter 6, when he opened up the first seal, and the seals represent judgment, the first seal in chapter 6, it is open, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder. But by the time you get to the seventh seal, when he opens that, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. That's fascinating to me. Why the silence? Why the silence? Paul in Acts 22 rises to the steps of the Tower of Antonio. And when he speaks in Hebrew, what happened to the crowd? What happened to the crowd class? You remember? They grew silent. The raucous mob was stilled. And there's silence in heaven. 
It is as if to say, get ready, something awesome is about to happen. That's what silence is. This is a silence, if you please, of expectancy. Something is about to happen. The wrath of God is poured out in even fuller measure than it has been in the first few of the seals. Notice those seals. There is in chapter 6 a description. Those, remember, are the seals of death and pestilence and famine and the seals of war. And all of these intensify on the earth. And these are given power over one-fourth. Look in chapter 6, verse 8. I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over what percentage of the earth? Already one-fourth of all the world has borne the hand of the wrath of God. And the tribulation is not over. Only the seals, four seals have been opened. Now there's silence in heaven. It is a silence of, expect, of expectancy. Something awesome is about to happen. Secondly, it is the silence of intensity. It's the silence of intensity. And third, it is a silence of warning. If you've ever been in a hurricane, you know that there's an eye. It's as if that swirling wind has marshaled up all the forces of nature and collected them in the movement of the wind so that in the center there is nothing. It is perfectly silent and perfectly still. And if you've ever been in a tornado, it was May 5th, 1989, on a Friday night, when I remember Shirley and I were working in that old study and we were rearranging books when suddenly there came an announcement over the TV that there was a tornado warning and that tornadoes had come up from Cleveland County through Iredell and Davie. And it was not more than seven minutes after that till the winds and the rain stopped and suddenly it was awesomely silent. As if that whirling tornado had gathered up all the energy in the atmosphere and had consumed it so that around it and just in front of it, there was nothing but silence and stillness. And then I could hear the freight train. I can hear it in my ears to this day. You can tell me it was a windstorm. I lost 87 trees in a one-acre lot. 27 of those were 20 inches or larger at the base. So awesome was the power. There were eight trees in our house. Some of you suffered even worse than that. Joyce and Bill had uh, a tree all the way through the house, didn't you, Joyce? Good night. But I shall never forget the silence. It was awesome. And in heaven, there's that kind of silence, as if God is gathering up all the energy of all history to pour it out on the earth in judgment during this tribulation period. Folks, I want to tell you, it is still an awesome and a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't ever get so familiar with God that you take him for granted. So there is the seal and there is the silence 
Then there are the seven. Notice verse 2. I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And opion. These are the angels of the presence of God. Now we know that there are ranks of angels. There are dominions. And there are principalities. And there are powers. And there are archangels, so we know that there are ranks, but these angels are the seven angels who are in the presence of God. I think I know the name of at least one of them. His name is Gabriel, because do you remember in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel said, I am Gabriel who stands, Enopion, who stands in the presence of God. So there are some angels who exist in the presence of God and are dispensed with messages from God. And these are the seven. And all seven of those angels are given seven trumpets. Now the trumpet is used to declare war, to call a great assembly. The trumpet is used to announce the festival days. And the trumpet is used in the crowning of a king. And the trumpet is used in the descent of the presence of God. Now, I see these angels as those sent from the presence of God to superintend the pouring out of wrath upon the earth. Then the Bible says, verse 3, there is another angel, another angel. We've already seen that, haven't we? In chapter 7, verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the east with the seal of the living God. You see it again in chapter 10, verse 1, another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Chapter 18, verse 1, you see it again. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Now, it's interesting that throughout the book of Revelation, angels are messengers from the presence of God to superintend the pouring out of wrath. Symbolic of this, that all wrath settles down upon the earth coming from almighty God. I don't believe that the other angel in any of these is Jesus Christ because in every place Christ is clearly specifically identified. In chapter 1, he's the son of man. In chapter 5, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Again in chapter 5, he is the lamb slain. And then in chapter 19, he is the word of God. So Christ is always clearly identified in Revelation. Uh, so this is another angel, a special angel with a dispensation. Now we've seen the seal, and we've seen the silence, and we've seen the seven. There's one other element here, and that is the censer. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. The golden altar. And the smoke of the incense, now watch this incident. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes. Now let's have a little history lesson for a moment. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the Bible records that Moses was told to build the tabernacle according to the pattern of heavenly things. So the tabernacle was built in a pattern of what is true in heaven. Now, do you remember that? And you agree. All right. 
Now let's walk to the tabernacle or the temple. They were arranged in this pattern. In the outer courtyard of the tabernacle, the outer courtyard, which is what you first encountered, there was the brass or brazen altar. And it was the altar of sacrifice. When a, an animal was slain, it was slain at that altar, and then its meat was burned or consumed by that fire, always kept at that altar. That fire was lit from the presence of God and was to have been in perpetuity representing God's consumption of the sacrifice. Because fire represents judgment, and the judgment consumes the sacrifice just as judge, our judgment was placed on Christ at the cross. Now, that's in the outer courtyard, courtyard. This brazen altar. It is this altar from which coals were taken when Isaiah was in chapter 6, caught up and saw the Lord high lifted up. And the seraphim took a live coal from the altar. It wasn't the golden altar of prayer. It was the altar of sacrifice and touched his lips. And then he realized that he was sinful and said, woe is me and I am undone. Now, how do I know that? Read John 12, 41. And the scripture says specifically that Isaiah saw Jesus. And there in that Sacrifice and the fire at that brazen altar is represented the Lord Jesus Christ as the consumed sacrifice bearing the wrath of God for our sin, just like the animals would be offered during Old Testament worship. Now we're in the outer courtyard, and there is first the brazen, the brazen altar, the brass altar, and then there is a laver, and the laver is filled with water. And the priest would go to the laver and wash his hands before he went into the sanctuary. Now, the next room in the tabernacle was the main room, and it was called the sanctuary or the holy place in Old Testament worship. Now, the first thing you encountered there was the seven-branched candlestick. Just as the brass altar represents the, the lamb slain, the Christ who is, is our lamb. And just as the laver represents the cleansing that Christ brings, the seven-branched candlestick, which Jews today call the menorah, is representing Christ, the light of the world. And then behind that laver, or behind that candlestick rather, is the table of showbread. And Christ is the bread of life. And then at the far end of that sanctuary, behind the candlestick and the table of showbread, is the golden altar. Now that altar is in the main room. This is not the altar in the courtyard. And there at that altar, that is called the golden altar of incense. And it is to that altar that the priest went every morning and every evening to offer incense along with the prayers of God's people. And that is where Zacharias was going when God told him about John. You remember when it came his turn in, in, the early, in Luke chapter 1, it came his turn to go in and, and offer the incense? That's what Zacharias was doing. In the morning and the evening prayers, a priest was chosen to go in and offer incense. 
You know, I've been all over the Middle East, and I can tell you in many of those Orthodox churches, uh, we, we go in and we smell incense. You always smell incense, and you wonder what in the world is the incense for, and it's almost repulsive to you, you know, but, but to, an ortho, to, to those of us who don't come out of that tradition. But to those who come out of that tradition, it's very important because it represents the incense carried over from the Old Testament. The incense, the aroma, represents Christ, the work of Christ. And it is offered with the prayers so that the prayers stand upon the merit, we'll see, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is at this golden altar that the incense is burned. Behind that altar is the veil. That's the veil that was rent from top to bottom. And behind that veil is the holiest of all. And there behind the holiest of all was the ark of God. And uh, on top of that chest was the mercy seat. And the cherubim and seraphim were up here. And between them dwelt the Shekinah glory. And only the high priest, and only once a year, did he go in. And only on the day of atonement did he go in and offer blood on the mercy seat as he worked his way into the temple. Now, if you catch that, here's the outer courtyard. Here's the main sanctuary, the holy place and then the veil, and then the holiest of all. Now remember what's happening, and you'll get the picture here. You'll understand it. An angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. It has to be the altar of incense because of the next sentence. And he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So he offers the incense. This is the heavenly picture John sees. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer after offering the incense and went back outside to the courtyard in John's, what John is seeing. And he took fire from the altar of sacrifice, mingled with blood. That's how we know it's from the altar of sacrifice. And threw it out upon the earth. And in this great pouring out of wrath, Look at what is said here. Already one-fourth of the people have borne the judgment of God. Now a third of the trees are burned, and all green grass was scorched. Symbolic of the, what the judgment of God did to the world as the angel threw it out. Now there are three things that you must see in this scene. There is first the merit of Christ. That is seen in the incense. As the prayers of the saints go up, it is the incense which carries them. They are carried with the aroma or the fragrance of Christ. And they rise up. All prayer is offered to God in its imperfection on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the incense accompanying the prayers which represents that it is the merit of Christ. It is the work of Christ which carries my prayer to God and your prayer. And all prayer is answered. Do you remember in chapter 5? In chapter 5, I showed you where the bowls of, of uh, prayers 
are seen in verse 8 of chapter 5, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, representing the prayers with the merit of Christ going to God. So my imperfect way of praying, even when I pray for things I have no right to pray for, are carried to God by the work and the merit of Christ so that God acts in my life on the basis of what Jesus has done. But he always answers. And so the merit of Christ first is the first thing you see. And that is the incense. And the incense always represents the work of Christ. The second thing you see in this scene are the prayers of the saints. They are never forgotten. They're the prayers that you prayed for your grandchildren. They're the prayers that I prayed for my family who might not be saved. They're the prayers that I prayed for you, which I haven't seen an answer to as of yet. And the third thing that you see here is the wrath of God. And it is the wrath of God which is represented in the fire from the altar thrown out to the earth. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's, let's pause for just a moment. Turn back to John chapter 3. I want you to see this because this is important, that you understand the wrath of God is, God, is not God's sudden anger it is not God's, one of God's bad moods. The wrath of God is settled already, already. And in John chapter 3, Jesus explains this. And he explains how Christ is the dividing line. John chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. When you see this scene in Revelation chapter 8, it's not a scene of a God who's anxious to punish the world. God sent Christ into the world not to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. And Christ is the dividing line. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now look at verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God is right now abiding. That's present tense, abides on him. I want to tell you that the wrath of God abides on this world. The only thing restraining it is the patience of God and what God is trying to accomplish. He is holding back the angels, but the wrath of God abides on you right now unless you are in Christ. And the wrath of God is his settled conviction that he despises sin. It's not something that he feels on Thursdays. It's not something that just comes up whenever you sin or I sin. It is God's already determined, settled conviction. He hates sin and he shall judge sin. It is already determined and the wrath of God rests on the world. It just has not been cut loose. And when you see the angel take the fire from that altar, the same fire representing judgment, that was on Christ. He became sin for us. The sin sacrifice consumed by the wrath of God, slain at Calvary. But because we've rejected him and we're not under him, now that wrath is dumped out on the world and the wrath of God, which has been abiding on the world, is now expressed to the world. It is coming. And that's the thing that we get out of the book of Revelation. The wrath of God is already settled. It's just being temporarily restrained. And God's wrath is his settled conviction about sin. Well, now, out of that, I want you to see that if God is in the divine, he is the divine initiator, 
that the supreme initiative of God is what he did in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, the destiny of the world is decided by what it does in regards to Jesus Christ. That's it. That's where it comes. And that's the, the meaning of the fact that the same angel that takes fire from the altar of sacrifice out here in the courtyard goes in and offers up the prayers of the saints. We have been praying for justice. We've been praying for our enemies. We have prayed all our lives, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now it shall happen. But it, it, the basis for it happening is the work of Christ. And the basis of judgment being thrown out on the world is the work of Christ. The Christ who saves us is the Christ who judges the world. Same Christ, same initiative of God, but a different response. And the contrast comes out of the response. And men, from that I learned something very important about the Christian life on an everyday basis. And here are four things I want to share with you. First, God's initiatives always require responses. You cannot be indifferent to God. Life with God is a series of our responses to his initiatives. Here is a temptation. I can choose this or this. I can choose to walk in the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 8, or I can choose to walk in the spirit. When I choose to walk in the spirit, I choose to respond to my circumstances by obedience to God. And when I choose to walk in obedience to God, then I have, to, I have responded to the divine initiative in a way that pleases him. And then God works in my life to bring another opportunity so that every circumstance is God's initiative. But it starts with God's initiative requires responses. Now, now the second thing is this. If you just will see that everything that happens in your life is God's opportunity for you to either grow or to be saved. If you're a Christian, it's an opportunity for you to grow. You've lost your job? Great. That's God's divine initiative to show you something else in your life. You know, when I come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, my whole perspective on life has changed. It's radically transformed. We rarely see this radical transformation. But because I follow Jesus Christ... My thinking about life has been changed. Now I used to protect my life, but now I see that whoever loses his life shall save it. I've got a radical new perspective on life. I used to think that the key to life before I became a Christian would be get all you can get. Now that I've yielded to the Lordship of Christ, my perspective has changed. The only way I create capacity for God to give me more is to give away whatever I have. That's a new perspective. Amen? Holy new perspective. When I come to Jesus Christ and I come under the Lordship of Christ, my perspective is transformed. I used to think that death was bad and life is good. Now I see what Paul meant when he said, death is gain. To die is far better. Oh, that doesn't mean that I hate life. It just means that I understand this is preliminary to what God has for me. And under the Lordship of Christ, my perspective has changed. Incidences that come to me are God's initiatives in my life so that I can have a chance to respond and grow and learn or be saved. If you're not a Christian, everything that happens in your life is God's initiative to draw you to the Savior and you're to bring you to repentance. You know, some people see the devil behind everything. 
something bad happens to him, the devil got my bad, my flat tire. I got a flat tire. The devil's after me. Well, have you ever stopped to think of it that if God is sovereign, you don't want to see the devil in everything. Don't give him more due than he really deserves. Amen? I don't want to credit the devil with everything. That flat tire is an opportunity for God to show you something. It's an opportunity for you to trust. It's an opportunity for you to grow. If we could just learn that under the Lordship of Christ, God's initiative is an opportunity to respond. Now, the second thing is this. Circumstances reflect God's initiative then. So that these circumstances are just exactly that. Permitted by God or brought by a sovereign providential hand for his glory and for your good. The third thing that we understand is that the heart is revealed by my response to those circumstances. The heart is revealed by my response to those circumstances that God gives me in life. Now, we've been down at a staff retreat at Lake Norman, and we borrowed a couple of CDs so that uh, when we had breaks, uh, I'm telling you, you, you wouldn't believe those wild pastors. You, you turn them loose on the lake and give them one hour, and they're like little kids. You put them on those CDs, and they are just like, just like teenagers. They go back all over again. So uh, when it came time for us to leave and we cleaned up the place that is loaned to us, I volunteered for the tough duty, which was to ride the Sea-Doo back to the uh, launching place. And when I did, uh, David Thompson driving Carol's car and, uh, uh, and Truett, uh, David drove over there and picked us up. And one of the little straps had broken, so we thought we would go see if we could find a strap. And we walked up to the marina man, and it was like 5 o'clock, and the man came out and said, can I help you? He said, yeah, we need a strap. Well, he said, I'm sorry, it's too late. Well, we think we, we, could you look at this and see if we got enough strap on this to hold this on the trailer? Well, I'm sorry, it's too late. Well, by this time, I wanted to say to the guy, why in the world did you walk up and say, can I help you? You know, if it's too late for everything, just say, it's too late. Goodbye. But he said, can I help you? And then two requests, and he doesn't do a thing for us. Right, Truett? I mean, where was the guy anyway? Where's his mind parked? Can I help you? Now, in that crisis, in that situation, he reveals something about himself, doesn't he? He's not going to work past five, I can tell you that. I can tell you that. And when he says, can I help you, he doesn't mean can I help you. He means it's over. And he reveals that if I ever get a boat and I ever leave it at Lake Norman, I won't go to that marina, I can tell you that. And if you want the name and address, I'll give it to you. That's finished. But he reveals something. Now, you see, that's a perspective on life for the believer. No need for me to get angry because his response tells me who he is, but why should I let him control me? And I want this is very important. I want you to understand that's what life is a series of. Really it is. And the fourth thing is 
that our responses to God's initiatives and circumstances render judgment or blessing, render judgment or blessing. Ultimately, Christ is God's divine initiative. And it is on the issue of Jesus and your response to him that your whole destiny rides. They who believe, Jesus said in John 3, are not condemned. The wrath of God is excused from them. But they who do not believe, the wrath of God is on them. That's what this one divine moment in prophetic future history says. When the angel takes the same coal and lights the prayers to say, justice is coming. The wrath of God will be administered. All those questions you had about how the unrighteous were blessed, they're all answered in this. And he lights that incense and the prayers ascend to God as an indication that our prayer for justice is now going to be carried out and fire from the same altar which consumed Christ which represents Christ, that fire is cast out in judgment upon the earth because of their rejection of him. And the ultimate divine initiative divides men, history, all knowledge is either seen through the eyes of a Christian worldview or the eyes of a humanist worldview. And Christ is the divider of men and prophecy and history and destiny. And it is your encounter with him, what you do with Jesus, that determines what God does with you for all time. Amen and amen. Let's stand in prayer. Our Father, I am remarkably encouraged by the fact that you're going to bring justice and judgment. Sustain us in that truth and teach us how to go through life responding according to your will to the great circumstances of life. I'm looking here this morning, dear Lord, at people who've been through cancer and heart attacks, job loss, bankruptcy, failed marriages. And our future hinges. Your divine work in us is based upon your sovereign eternal purpose for us as we learn to respond to you. Teach us how to keep responding in life according to your will. And Father, if there is one man or woman or 50 men and women, 10 boys and girls in this room who are not absolutely sure that they have put their faith in the work of Jesus at the cross for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life, draw them right now. Convict them of their need of Christ. Without Christ, there is only judgment ahead for them. But with Christ, they're out from under your wrath. And today, Father, show that to every person without Christ in this building. In Jesus' name. Thank you.